Hybrid Podcast brought to you by Jalen Utsi, Kyle Stein, and today we are also joined by our good friend David Smook. Uh, he is a composer who teaches at Peabody, and even more important than that, he absolutely dominated the regular season of our Scorekeeper Fantasy League this year. David, welcome to the pod. Thank you. It's so really fun to be here. I've been listening to all of them and looking forward to chatting with you guys. Yeah, we're looking forward to hearing your perspective on this game. We're looking at Game 3, the 1977 Western Conference semifinals. It, um, uh, I'll just tell you the score right off the top because it doesn't really matter. Portland wins 110-106 to over Denver to take a 2-1 lead in the series. David, why'd you choose this game? Well, I had always grown up hearing stories about the ABA, and I became an NBA fan um, when Magic joined the league, um, and so I'd never really seen ABA basketball before, and so when we went to the NBA Classic, I was looking for a game that would be the season right after the merger to see, right. you know, how the styles changed, what of the ABA stayed, and to try and see, you know, like how an old ABA team would um would would look different than an nba team when they're playing the same game right so this is the 1977 season the first year after that merger there were four teams from the aba that were integrated into the nba the san antonio spurs who also made the playoffs this year the indiana pacers and new york nets neither of whom made the playoffs and then the denver nuggets who we're seeing in this game against the trailblazers what sort of connections did you see but see between the uh, I know you went back and looked at some 1976 ABA games. What? How did Denver look different in those games versus this NBA game? Oh my God, the ABA games were so much more fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I went back and watched too, and then I watched some highlights as well because it's a very different flow to the game than what we're seeing in this 1977 NBA game. The flow of the game, but also just the weird stuff like um. But they were. I was watching the the clinching game of the '76 ABA Finals, and someone stole the championship trophy before the game. Right. So they actually right. didn't have a trophy to give out. And you know, they and discussed were, what they gave out. They decided on some bowl they found and something else like that was going to be the trophy. <laughs> it's just like how it boggles the mind. And then there's the basketball stuff, you know. So there was one play where Denver's running a fast break, and Dan Issel, who's playing center. Instead of um, he uh, he's off ball and instead of running down the lane, he actually fades to the corner and the ball handler runs to the center, runs toward the rim and then passes the ball to him and he shoots from the corner. It's not a tray because I looked at the box score and he doesn't have a three pointer, but the commentators don't say anything. It's just but it was by far the most modern NBA play I saw of any game I've watched before 2000. Right. There was the you did see modern basketball in a different way. One of the things that struck me is the way the courts look so different with a three point line and without a three point line. And so in the NBA game, we have a standard court. We have the orange key. We have the color at center court, but it's just open basketball court hardwood floor besides that. At. In the ABA game, there's a three-point line, and it's colored in red, and then there's the key that is colored in blue. It's almost as if the players naturally fill out this colored-in space on the court in the ABA game, even though threes aren't such a big shot then as they are now. Just having it there changed the way the game worked. But also the court design, because when the NBA adds the three-point line, they almost look like they're afraid of it. Because the early NBA courts with the three-point line is just a little white stripe, whereas sure. the ABA three-point, like you said, the entire area inside the three-point line was painted red. So very modern looking. Right, right. And yeah, we just didn't see that. I almost had the feeling uh, with, with this 1977 NBA game. I guess the ABA game in a way, too, in a different way. But in the NBA game, the 1977 one, it almost felt like a high school game at times. The way the court looked, pretty basic design, the announcers, the way the fans interacted, all of that stuff. It had that sort of vibe and feel. Very different from a contemporary NBA game. 
Yeah, I mean, I think uh, as we're discussing, the three-point line is like one of the biggest rule changes the NBA has ever seen. And, you know, it really didn't come into play until, you know, as recently as who knows, like 2014, um, as far as like the three-point revolution that we're seeing today. But just I think in watching this game, you see the ways in which uh, the paint is just really packed um and you know there isn't a lot of driving room for players uh everyone's sagging off their the person that they're guarding and giving up these mid-range twos um so you know you just can't really avoid that in this early basketball right right so let's get deeper into this 1977 game to set it up just a little bit uh denver is playing ted mclean at the one david thompson at the two dan issel also known as horse at the three bobby jones at the four the secretary of defense paul silas at the five and then they have a relatively weak bench after that i'm not going to get too much into that um though there are a couple interesting points we can get to later Portland is starting at the one. Dave Twardzik. I'm not sure I have that right, so apologies. But Lionel Hollins. It actually Lionel, is right. It was? Okay, thanks. Uh, Lionel Hollins at the two. Bob Gross at the three. Maurice Lucas at the four. And Bill Walton, Big Red, Grateful Red, Red Baron, Redwood at the five. Um, it's a really close game. The announcers talk about it repeatedly. The lead change. There are plenty of lead changes. There are a bunch of ties. Um, How would you feel about the flow of this game? The feel of this game? Um, you know, 43 years ago versus now. Yeah, I mean, I think I was taken. The thing that I couldn't avoid or I couldn't help focusing on was Lionel Holland. So. Lionel Hollins looked very much like a player, uh, and I don't think yeah. of someone who who has like staying power in the like collective memory of NBA fans, uh, you know, like who weren't born or weren't watching the league at this time. But in this game, you know, he's very quick. Um, you know, he's got yeah. speed and quickness, and I would say he has the surest handle of anyone in the game. It's it's obviously I think him and the the point guard towards it, oh. but he he has a bit more power. I think he's a bit taller. Um, um, and as David Thompson has 40 points, but I think uh, when he when he's missing, I think Lionel Hollins is the primary defender in a lot of those situations, and he's doing a good job of defending him. Thompson, who can hit outside, tries to go one on one on Hollins. That's an offensive foul against David Thompson. Well, that's an area that you don't really want David up on top handling the ball and running your offense. So he should be out on the wing where he could be very free to do it. And there you see he's trying to force his way to create something, and he bumps right into Lionel Holland. And I couldn't help but thinking that if he was playing in an environment with a three-point line, with, like, modern spacing, he would have been much better at, like, attacking the basket and finishing in the lane. Uh, he, well, also, I mean, Holland's had that half-court heave at the end of the third quarter, right? So, you know, yeah. you got to think he's got some range. Yeah, yeah. And and I'll I'll look up now like what his career statistics were. I think he he shot only uh 46% from the field for this series in total and he was 5 of 15 in this game. So, he didn't shoot the ball well in this game, but I think his defensive impact, you know, his energy pushing the ball in transition um, I was just struck with him. He just kind of like popped on the screen for me. Yeah, he very much looked like a contemporary player. And his quickness, one of the things that resulted in was four steals on the game. And at one point, I can't remember which announcer. I don't think it was Lenny Wilkins. I think it was the um, the other guy on the call who I'm blanking on right now. But basically remarks that Thompson can't even keep up with Hollins. And mm-hmm. they should move him to a forward spot. Denver's not really set up to do that. But it was striking how quick Lionel Hollins was. Yeah, absolutely. We've been talking about David Thompson a little bit and around it. He has a huge game, 40 points, eight rebounds, three assists. You know, we saw him in the dunk contest in our last pod. We're seeing him here in in his first NBA playoff series or second playoff series, but first NBA playoffs. And we saw and uh, went back and watched. He was part of the um, ABA championship game in 76 too. So um, thoughts on his play, his game, how it translates today. First, can I make a little correction? This actually is his first NBA playoff series. Oh, is it? 
I thought it was the yeah. semis, no? It is. But this is one of the things oh. that just kind of blew my mind because partway through, um, they start showing stats for some of the um, Blazers players from the previous round against Chicago, but they never do with the Nuggets players. So I start asking. So I, so I went back and it turned out that from 75 to 83, the top seeds got buys. Oh, so okay. in, in 75, they went to five teams per conference. So the first place team got the so the so the, for the top seed got a buy. And in 77, they went to six teams per conference. So the top two seeds got buys. Okay. So and the Nuggets were the two seed that they year, were the, uh, 50 and 32. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I didn't I, I didn't catch that part. So um, yeah, that's interesting. Then. So it is his first series. Um, he was one of the other players. There are a few others. Uh, Bobby Jones stuck out to me. Maurice Lucas, Bill Walton. Um, the quickness of Ted McLean, too, I thought was uh, um, pretty fun to watch. Dan Issel can shoot. But David Thompson kind of lit up the screen. Yeah, and uh, so we, we've been talking around and a bit about Michael Jordan in the Last Dance documentary. We touched upon his um, Hall of Fame speech, I think, in a previous pod, and uh, he actually had David Thompson induct him as his sort of steward into the Hall of Fame and not one of his teammates or anyone like that. Um, and so I think this is someone who MJ grew up watching, and I think you can see the similarities. Obviously, uh, David Thompson is sort of a skywalker. You know, he has the amazing leaping ability. He skies for a bunch of offensive rebounds in this game um, for putbacks. But also, I think the way in which you can see the similarities to Michael Jordan's game is he sort of like wants to get to get to a spot, rise up, and shoot over you. Thompson cuts it down to two, and that was a real good shot by David Thompson. He went to the baseline and just out jumped on Holland. And he has the ability to like hang in the air and finish the play that way. So I, I was struck by that in watching David Thompson. Yeah, and also that those that those shots are fadeaways. Because yeah. Michael actually talks about, um, and I got this from, there's a J. Kyle Mann video on The Ringer about Michael Jordan's fadeaway. And one of the things he talks about is how Jordan actually talked about de- uh, developing the fadeaway after looking at David Thompson. And you can see there is one play there in the with about five minutes left in the third quarter. Um, he takes a fallaway jumper off his left foot at the right elbow. He misses. Um, Jim Price takes gets the rebound. And he does another miss, and then Thompson does a putback and gets fouled by Lucas. And it's just it all it feels without sequence, almost like I'm watching MJ. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's just. It's so similar of sort of like get to a spot, jump as high as you can. The defender can't keep up, you know, hit the shot. And he's got a very smooth jumper. You know, he's it's a really nice looking jumper. He scores 40 points in this game. I think he shoots 55 percent for the game. Uh, so it's an efficient 40. Um, he's eight from eight from the free throw line. Uh, so, yeah, it, it was it was a great performance by him for sure. Yeah, definitely. And I think there are a couple other things to call out here. David Thompson's uh, nickname, Skywalker. This is 1977, and uh, Star Wars debuts the same year. Any thoughts on that? Well, yeah, it turns out that <laughs> Luke Skywalker was actually not originally named Luke Skywalker. He was originally named Luke Starkiller. And it was only <laughs> as they were filming the movie that they thought, well, maybe this isn't the best idea. So they changed his name. So David Thompson definitely had the name first. <laughs> and do we assume George Lucas is a basketball fan or was this coincidence or something else? I looked I looked into it and I found no reference to George Lucas liking basketball. But George Lucas, <laughs> if you're listening, put us up. <laughs> So I think I think the Star Wars franchise needs to give the NBA and the ABA and the NCAA and David Thompson a little credit here. Um, so anyway, but, yeah, but, um, I mean, but, but that nickname also, I mean, it could go, you know, you were talking last week about all of Daryl Dawkins nicknames. Yeah. And when I hear, you know, all of Dawkins nicknames like Chocolate Thunder, I hear Skywalker. To me, those are funk nicknames. And, you know, the ABA, it's like funk music and the whole league, you know, it's the same time as you start getting Bootsy Collins and George Clinton and Earth, Wind and Fire having this idea of music being brought to us from outer space. And it's like the it's absolutely the basketball equivalent of it. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I, I guess it's not a coincidence that Denver, the Denver players have much better nicknames than the Portland players coming from the ABA. Ted McLean is Hound Dog. 
David Thompson, Skywalker, Dan Issel's just horse. Bobby Jones is the Secretary of Defense. For some reason, Paul Silas has no nickname. I wouldn't mind Marvin Webster. Oh, right, Marvin Webster. They call it out in one of the ABA games, I think. Do, do you have it, David? The Human Eraser from right. Baltimore, <laughs> nevertheless. The Human Eraser. So um, I want to go back to the Thompson-Michael Jordan connection a little bit. This is something I wasn't um, particularly aware of, though I did know he had given the, the Hall of Fame introduction. I didn't really see it until I went back and watched a supercut of David Thompson's highlights from this game. It's just an 11-minute video on YouTube. It, like, if you didn't know it was David Thompson, it could look like Michael Jordan with that mid-range jump, jumper rising straight up, his body so straight or leaning back. I'd never quite seen it before, but you can see a lot of Michael Jordan and David Thompson. Yeah, and there's there's obviously an evolution. I mean, I'm not like a David Thompson expert by any means, but in this game you see he's kind of unable to take full advantage of his athleticism in transition. Uh, a, because there's no three-point line and the paint is packed and people are kind of like in the way, in the middle of the lane. But B, you know, you think of a player like someone like Dwayne Wade who's known for this like slippery going in and out, changing directions very quickly in transition. Um, you know, we don't really see that. You know, if there's someone who's sort of impeding right. the run way uh we sort of veer out or we stop and pop for the mid-range jumper whereas you know you would imagine like if he had come along later uh when basketball skill like for everyone ha was at a greater level you know he might be someone who would have even more uh dunks in transition and more highlights like that well um, if he um if he actually cared that much about basketball <laughs> yeah <laughs> because do, i mean do we think he didn't well i mean he he um did his he did end his career ending injury he suffered by being shoved down a stairwell during a fight at studio 54 <laughs> well that, that was one of the other things i was going to mention with him in connection with jordan was that they both have these really kind of self-destructive aspects of their character um sort of addictive personality where you know for jordan it was gambling and for um for David Thompson, it was cocaine, and it was cocaine that led to that Studio 54 incident. Um, and uh, I mean, I also was just thinking, you know, David and Michael, you know a lot more about the the ABA and kind of the 70s NBA and before the Stern era. But you know, it was obviously a much more controversial time, and the, the NBA sure. was full of fights, and it was you know it was connected to, to drugs and all these things. And I was wondering how you saw that fitting in with him. I mean. It's it's kind of it's really sad that his career is so short because he did. I mean, he just seemed like a, a jump off the screen talent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he, he absolutely was. Um, and the, the, the fighting was an odd thing, because one of the th one of the things that struck me about watching these games from the 70s is how much less physical a lot of the play is, but how quickly some of the fights could come out of nothing. And we see it in this game. Um, we don't see a lot of it in the Denver-Portland game, but we catch some of it with the cut-ins that they're doing in this game. With the, they bring in the Lakers and the Golden State Warriors, and there's, we just get coverage of a fight in one of the cut-ins. Um, there was a well, different kind of violence. Um, Daryl Dawkins, yeah. uh, Dawkins and Maurice Lucas literally throw down in the finals. Like, yeah. um, I mean, Ma Maurice Lucas was known as the enforcer, and he... He just, you know, they, 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 they throw serious punches at each other and, I, you know, just they have really good fighting for him. Yeah, it was yeah. a very, very different thing in that in, in that sense. Um, yeah, I uh, think there was more of a like a lazy fair attitude toward uh, fighting like there. I was looking at the rules and there were like fines for getting ejected and things like that and flagrant fouls. But um, the fines were pretty low. But I mean, the money was low all around. But it just seemed like, you know, a fight could happen and maybe, you know, no one would even get suspended or kicked out of the game and they would just go back to normal. You know, there's a play in the game where someone runs into the back of, uh, I think it's a Blazers player. Um, and they say, you know, the announcer says the referee saw it, but he said play on, you know, no effect on the game. And it was just kind of that seemed to be representative of the attitude. You know, some a scuffle yeah. could break out and then that's it. It's over and we just move on. 
Can yeah, we talk it, a minute about the about the format of the game? Because you know we missed an, an altercation, an almost fight. You know, Larry sure. Steele and Jim Price. You know, we only hear about it from right. the announcers afterward that they had a near fist fight and had to be like dragged away from one another. But we were at a cut in to the Lakers. Um, Golden State game. It was it was a really weird game to watch in that we come into the game midway through the first quarter. Couldn't quite yeah. figure out why that was the case. If we nope. if the broad, <laughs> broadcast had maybe started off in Golden State or or what was going um, on, they but, could have come to the game late. That could have ha- that that would have been a TV thing back then. Yeah, and and then you know and so we actually miss a whole like we get um, summations of like whole. Right series of play that we missed you know a layup here and you know jump shot there to get us back up to where the score is and you know just in our experience doing these classic games that was novel (laughs) yeah it it was kind of odd to miss big chunks that first chunk and then what four five six times throughout the game a few minutes of a quarter here and there um so yeah it was a little difficult to get the flow in the same way we have on some of these other classic games because at first i thought that we had missed the game the fight intentionally like they had take like on tape delay had like cut it out but then we end up getting a fight or a near fight that they cut two in the the golden state lakers game you remember that one where that one was amazing the the assistant coach is like dragging him to the bench he picks him physically picks him up swings him around and just sort of yeah it was kind of crazy to see in that era you know remember this course this is pre-internet and you know and you only had your you you probably had one television in your entire household so if you wanted to get any updates on the other games, you had to actually physically go there. So I think that they were being totally cutting edge by doing that, being like, oh, look, right. there's this other game. It's also exciting. Part of like all the cutting edge visuals, like the beautiful court with the the logo at center court that's just <laughs> I mean, purple and orange and, you know, and yellow, I mean, these concentric circles and... That Blazers logo and their script on the, the you know, like the panel um, is yeah. it just I mean, it just holds up today as among the best graphics that <laughs> I've ever seen. I actually really love it in those sort of rainbow colors that they have. Yeah, that center court was kind of amazing. In the middle, there's this blinding white or near white color. Um, then there's, I, I think it goes yellow, orange, magenta, blue, something like that with, with smaller concentric circles of different colors in between those larger colors. It's really a fantastic piece of court art that we don't quite see anymore though. The, the, the nuggets, it was odd at first. I thought this was at the nuggets because of their rainbow colors, but it wasn't, this was the trailblazer. So yeah, the nuggets I, I court has a relatively demure center court, but it has the exact same orange in the keys and the baselines. Wow. Also, yeah. did you see the Denver logo from this era of the, like <laughs> th- this, like cartoon minor? It's wild. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, kind of your 70 yeah. Sam type character as a yeah. minor. Yeah. Yeah. So Denver, we when Denver was first founded um, in '67, there they were actually originally named the Denver Larks, and the Lark logo is one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. But they never played as the Larks. They never played as the Larks in the no, ABA. And yeah, so before the first season, they um, they were undercapitalized, and they brought in this guy named Bill Ringsby, who was a trucking magnate. <laughs> And he and he renamed the company after his long haul truck, so they became the Denver Rockets. There's some great old 70s artwork of a rocket dribbling a ball down the court with the mountains as a background, and that 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 was the Denver Rockets ABA logo, um, which I sort of fell in love with. So, though, the, do you know why they were called the Larks, David? I know you have a particular affection for birds. Is yeah, there a reason the Colorado- here? The Colorado State Bird. Oh, okay. Yeah, there it is. All right. Um, And going back, I think Kyle is absolutely right. Those trailblazer uniforms are El Fuego. And they're beautiful. I'd love to see those in today's game. I think they use them as a throwback here and there. Don't the trailblazers from time to time? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think... 
Um, we don't see it, but I have to bring this up. Uh, I know, Kyle, you were on this, too. Um, a couple of things. One, uh, Larry Brown's uh, jacket, and we'll come back to that. But the other thing, Jack Ramsey has a pair of amazing white pants with rows of blue and red checks on them. I love those pants. I want those pants. So patriotic. Uh, <laughs> Even his outfit was way wild. From buying them. It was just <laughs> great. Like but, he's got he's got that deep cut V, like taking down the extra button with the wide lapels. I mean, yeah, he was doing some real '70s style. He was showing skin below the sternum, probably Jack Ramsey. Um, and one of the things that made me think of it. I think the Trailblazers do have the throwbacks that bring in the jerseys we're seeing in this game, but the Portland Trailblazers also have a throwback jersey they wear from time to time. I haven't seen it recently, but it's a throwback to Jack Ramsey's clothes and the clothes he wore coaching. So there's one red plaid jersey they wear that's a throwback to Ramsey's outfits. So um, just wanted to bring that up. But the other piece of clothing I wanted out of this game was Larry Brown's tartan plaid jacket. Did you guys notice this thing? I thought it was just amazing. Uh, yeah, how could you not notice it? It was visible from outer space. <laughs> so it's it's this tartan plaid. It's a, got a its base is this cream, a light brown, a dark brown, but then it has this wide orange stripe running through the middle of the torso. These two other green bands above and below it, and on the sleeves in those timeout plays where he's drawing up plays on those whiteboards, Which you see this amazing vertical us. stripe on the sleeve. It's just like. Anyway, so yeah, some really great stuff in that sense. And in the, and 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 they, and they go into his huddles and they show us his whiteboard. But with yeah. the way the TV is, you can't see any of the markings on it. It's the most <laughs> it's, hilarious. No, it's so yeah. so It's also so great like we, because we, Lenny Wilkins is continually trying to decipher it, and he's like giving. He's like, this play is definitely going to go to this guy, and then it like doesn't right. play out like that at all. Well, there was one that's clearly a yeah, play called for it, Bobby it, Jones, and then. David Thompson takes the shot, <laughs> but Lenny Wilkins was like, I, they got the shot they wanted. <laughs> it's like, yeah, okay, no. <laughs> it, it was really funny. Cause as you say, David, you can't see the markings at all. And they, they're like showing it to you. Like, look, we're showing you <laughs> the X's and O's <laughs> that this coach is using in the game, but you can't see anything. And Lenny Wilkins is trying to decipher it. And I feel like he just went with like the two best scores on the team. He's like, Oh, this is going <laughs> to drop a play for uh, David Thompson or Dan Etzel or whatever. It's just sort of right. like, he's just picking at random <laughs> who's going to get the shot. And like, you know, he's like, well, there's like a 50, 50 chance this might work out for me. <laughs> right. I'd love to see like today someone go, okay, pop, we are going to go into the huddle. And we're actually going to have a camera on your iPad as you drop the plays. Can you yeah. imagine Popovich? No, I mean, this is a thing. I think they do this in, in the NBL uh, in, the, in, in Australia, and I think they do it in some places overseas where they actually like the camera is in the huddle. And, and I don't know how, how much it's picking up X's and O's, but you can see the coaches like just reaming the players out and cursing them out and things <laughs> like that, which we do not have now, obviously. Right. Um, and when I was watching this, it made me think of baseball in the sense that they just had this sign stealing scandal. And like, I could imagine some that sort of thing happening in the NBA if there was like X's and O's being showed. I mean, everyone should know the plays already. There's all this kinds of advanced scouting. So in some sense, it's like, why not? Why not show it to the fans? And in this game, but, we have so many coaches. I mean, there's, you know, there's... um. You know, Larry Brown and Jack Ramsey, the two great coaches. Lenny Wilkins on color commentary. Dan Issel becomes a coach for a long time. Paul Silas. Lionel Hollins yep. is still coaching yep. in the league. Yep. Yep. Um, Wally Walker, who's on the bench, becomes the GM of the Sonics for two decades. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, you know, this incredible, you know, brain power in this game. Yeah, there is tons of history here. Um uh, speaking of, I want to go back to um, one of the topics you brought up, David, um, the nicknames we were talking about, and you brought it up as funk music, um, uh, possibly origin. Um, what I'm wondering about uh, is other funk music connections. I know you mentioned some other things about the differences between the ABA and the NBA. Uh, do you want to give us some of that? Well, yeah, thank you. I, th I think 
the um, you know, you, in one of your first pods, you talked about that Dave Hickey article, the heresy of the zone defense, yeah. and kind of the constraints that allow for greater freedom. Right. And I think the three point line kind of does that in a way that funk music does. So in funk music, a lot of the improvisations are based around one chord. So a lot of rock and roll music is you get like the British invasion, you get more and more complex chord progressions and it becomes more and more about all the different chords, which is like the highly coached games and, and, you know, and, and designing everything beforehand. But then having the three point line in the spacing, it's like that one chord where you don't have all the complexity of the progressions, but instead you have this very simple basis that allows for this incredibly complex exploration and improvisation around that. So it's like spacing things out and allowing for more freedom for everyone can do their own thing in a way, you know, they just have the space to do their own thing in funk music and with the three-point line. So the three-point line is the equivalent of the one chord in this figurative discussion? Yeah, in a, in a sense, because it's kind of that, that constraint that allows for greater freedom. So w- would this match up with something like the triangle offense, too? It just dawned on me. But the triangle offense was the same thing over and over again, that but had infinite variations or near-infinite variations within it. Smook, that's a really smart idea. <laughs> like, I can't believe, like... Think, yeah, we don't we don't think about the three point line as a constraint, but it actually because it came after the two point shot, we tend to think of it as an addition. But it's not the way it plays out in the game is that all of a sudden everything, all the other shots, all the two pointers, what used to be a shot in general, become less valuable. And so all of a sudden the whole game gets moved out beyond that line. And so it acts as like a dividing line between basically what's permissible and what's not, or at least what's valuable and what's not. That's that's a really cool Analogy. It's interesting to watch this game because if you're talking about that three-point line in today's game, you see every, you know, the, the the offense is initiated above it. You see everybody taking their spots in the corners, on the wings, around the three-point line, outside the three-point line. And this, and in, in the ABA game, you know, leading up to this, that isn't what happens. Everybody's playing within the three-point line, but they're spread out to it versus this 1977 NBA game we're watching where the three-point line isn't there and they don't fill up that space anymore. Yeah, exactly. It kind of gives you a, a way to go backwards a little bit, whereas in this, you know, it's, it's why Bill Walton is so effective and Kareem and, you know, Bill right. Russell before them, you know, because the offense just can't do anything if you've got one of these shot-blocking behemoths who can move laterally a good five feet, you know, you just, you're sunk without the three-point yeah. line. Yeah, I mean, it's so true. I think the three-point line, and and I feel like we say this all the time, but the three-point line is as much about the three-point shot, you know, where you get the extra point as it is about the layup, you know, or as it is about scoring efficiently in the paint. And I think you can see that in watching older games. There's no three-point line, and what you often see, especially in this game, as you say, uh, Bill Walton blocked 18 shots in this series, um, and he's pretty much in the paint the entire game because – the, the person he's guarding is right next to him just outside of the paint. So he's legally allowed to be in the paint pretty much the entire game. So the, the idea of like driving and getting a layup, like do we, do we see a clean layup in the <laughs> half court setting in this game? No, you just don't oh, yeah, see it. No, it doesn't whereas, happen ever. Whereas you, whereas you absolutely see that sort of stuff. And, and also I think in, in some sense it prevents you from getting these situations where two players are meeting at the apex or someone gets dunked on because there's no runway for that to happen. You know, there's just, there's just so, so much clutter. Everything is packed in tightly and everyone is just sort of, it's like boxing elbows to an extreme degree where every person has like a foot in the paint and they're all kind of, they're kind of guarding their man, but they're kind of ignoring him and they're kind of playing like, semi chase the ball slash pack the paint so um yeah it's just a completely different completely different game yeah absolutely uh and does that uh i'm curious does that freedom um take any other forms uh in in the aba versus the nba do we see any other sorts of changes like that for the nuggets from 76 to 77 anything along those lines i i I love this part of the discussion well i mean 
the, in, so in the in the 76 series, they've got this um, backup point guard named Monty Tao, who actually invented the alley-oop because he was at college with David Thompson. They both went to NC State. And it was Monty Tao who was the point guard who threw, who would started throwing lobs to David Thompson, which, as you talked about last pod, he couldn't actually dunk until his very <laughs> right. last game. There were a lot of so, layups, and we see it in the NBA game here. He's quite good at not dunking but making alley-oop shots. Oh, but he has one dunk in game five that's just beautiful, cocks the ball back and brings it down. But anyway, so this guy, Monty Tao, is five foot seven, listed at five foot seven. And yeah. I'd be shocked if he's actually that tall. He gets yeah, a I'm good giving him five, five tops. Yeah, but he gets a good 17 minute run. He's very effective because there's more space he can operate. On the left right now, we're looking at Brian Tedder, the backcourt man. On the right, it's five foot six, some say five foot five, Monty Tao of the Denver Nuggets, and he was quite a spark plug in that game. Well, one of the great things about the playoffs, really, is that uh, the less heralded people can come off the bench and do a job. Monty Tao, you may not have noticed in this test the other night, I thought he turned it around for Denver. Uh, Jim Akins in the game before, who had not been seeing too much playing time, came off the bench. So it's not always the doctor and David Thompson. Uh, the lesser knowns can do it, too. Um, he's yep. still on the Nuggets in this series, but he gets, I think, six minutes the whole series, um, you know, and d- just doesn't do anything. You know, and yeah, I think he because... play in this game three. Yeah, and, and it's just that, you know, by it, it all comes down to the spacing, which, you know, just everything and having more spacing allows for the creativity and allows for different types of players to be effective. Yeah. Speculated, and I think, oh, I was just going to say people speculated in the press that Tao was kind of a package deal um, for Thompson. I mean, it was largely struck down, but people were thinking it a lot back in the day because he was such a short guy and the fact that, you know, Thompson was was such a highly sought after recruit. If you watch that 70s that that very last ABA game, he's kind of great to watch though. The the guy could play, he could shoot, he was a great passer. He knew how to get to spots, he knew how to get other guys open. What was a was a very good player in the way. Who was it we were watching Muggsy Bogues? Was that the Charlotte game mm-hmm. a while back? Yeah. Yeah. Not dissimilar in the way he sets up his teammates, you know, always looking to make that pass, but would take and could take a very clean jumper if he had the space. Um, very Muggsy Bogues-like in all of that, those senses. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas in the 77 game, the person who's doing those beautiful passes is Bill Walton. And it comes from the center <laughs> yeah, position. Yeah, now. yeah. I wanted to say, like, uh, big-to-big passing or interior passing is so much more uh, important in this game because of the lack of space. So you see you see so many passes without a dribble, which I don't think you really see as much in today's game. Like, you see, you know, uh, during the halftime break, Lenny Wilkins break down, breaks down the Blazers' play. He calls it, uh, we call it the uh, split action, I think is the, t- the terminology he uses, which is, right. as you say, Michael, it, these are triangle principles, um, and I don't know it looks just like it looks just like the triangle on the clipboard. We can see this one clearly, and it's the triangle offense. Yeah, and this, I mean, this has so many different like versions. You know, whether it's like in the modern era, you know, you've got the Warriors who are now doing it at the three-point line. They're running these split cuts with, you know, just just put Draymond Green in the um, Bill Walton role, and the two people now running it are Steph Curry and Clay Thompson. And instead of like cutting to the basket, uh, one of them is cutting to the basket, and the other is you know going out to the three-point line. So you've got that. But right. you you also saw it with Kevin Love in Minnesota. Um, where he was running this like high post elbow offense where these, you know, you need a good passing big man, uh, you know, who can just hold the ball, command the offense and then find cutters and find shooters that way. Um, but yeah, the constraints of the game, I think, made it such that like big men had to be much better for your passes, passers. And even the the complementary talent on the floor, you had to be able to catch the ball and make a quick read and drop the ball down low because you couldn't really like take a bunch of dribbles and attack the basket from where you were. The, the fastest, most efficient way was to just kind of, uh, you know, touch pass it to the next guy. Right. Yeah. One of the differences in the play in general, I thought, is that overall, both teams, we saw much better passing. And we saw much better just simple jump shooting, especially from the mid-range, up and down the lineup. Almost everybody could shoot. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I again, I don't want to like over exaggerate, but watching this game, like I think about, you know, the last dance was on, was just aired, um, and we're 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 diving into this Michael Jordan folklore, and the '90s is just like, I feel like brute strength was so much more important for you yeah. as a basketball player in the Definitely. '90s, and it wasn't, it didn't seem to me to be an extremely skilled. Uh, period uh in the nba (laughs) like the superstars look familiar to us they look more similar to what we have today but the other players you know the four men who are like 6 11 and huge and more in for defense and can't really do anything on offense that's so foreign whereas here we see the four men they can shoot you know they can pivot they can pass uh they they can even take a couple dribbles you know if they they're if they're past the ball in transition they don't immediately freak out and so i was just struck by that and i think you see a lot of like the game's origin right it looks like portland i mean both teams really but portland especially like their their motto is like transition secondary break then we get into offense like every single time they're they're going (laughs) through that checklist like they're 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 getting out to run as much as possible and if it doesn't work then they like do secondary break and then they get into their offense whereas like you know you watch a 90s game and it's just it's just walk the ball up the floor uh throw it into the guy in the post uh orchestrate everyone to get to onto one side of the floor so that you get an illegal defense call if anyone uh ignores the rules you know it's just it's completely different there are different kinds of players in this game that we just don't see today. I'm not sure, you know, if this were a playoff series today, Dan Issel, who's a great shooter but playing with an injury, might be played off the court. He doesn't move that well. Paul Silas is pretty slow at this point in his career. There are some guys who just wouldn't make it on the floor today. And then there are guys at the four, like Bobby Jones, who was really just incredible in this game after not scoring until midway through the second quarter, ends up with a line of 17 points, nine rebounds, five assists, seven steals, and four blocks. Bobby Jones was incredible in the third quarter. It, it, it was amazing. He, he, he kept Denver in this game through the third quarter. Um, and, then and then he just sort of, got exhausted. Yeah, he was, he, he was wiped out. You could see it. You could see it in his missed shots, even some uh, missed free throws where he just looked like he was torched at the free throw line, just too tired to even really shoot a good shot. I uh, was curious about that depth issue because, you know, Denver was – the standout team in the ABA the year before. I was there was a feature piece on them in Sports Illustrated that I read to sort of like give myself some context for it. Yeah. And they had five of the top nine shooters in the league by percentage. Um, and they were outscoring every team in the ABA by at least six points per game. Um, and so they were like this tremendously talented team. And then you just got the sense against Portland that they just didn't have enough guns, you know, like they were so wiped out in, you know, by the end of the third quarter and, Jack Ramsey was able to continue to just like, you know, cycle guys in and out and get them breathers here and there. And I was wondering if that was, you know, something about entering into the NBA at that moment or do it. Do any of you know? Well, the Nuggets are a little short. For one reason, um, the ABA teams weren't allowed draft picks in the 77 season. So that was part of the merger coming over. There was a supplementary draft of some sort. I can't remember what it's called, but they didn't get draft picks the way all of the NBA teams did. So could be a reason they're a little thin. Also, they're act, they're literally a little short. They have like four or five players under 6'1", whereas Lionel Hollins at 6'1", is Portland's smallest player. Oh, Interesting. Towards is, is, is pretty short, too, now, like 6'1", six, 6'2". Six, uh, I don't remember. By the way, what did you guys think of Twardzik watching him play? His haircut or his game? His game. <laughs> I liked it. I mean, he, I feel he like, looked, Yeah, I feel like he was useful. Absolutely oh, useful. Sorry, Twardzik was the 6'1 guy. Hollins is 6'3". Sorry. Okay. So no, just he just looked like a solid, efficient guy, knew where to be, knew where to make the play, you know, that sorts of stuff. Played pretty tough defense um, w- when we saw it. Um, played pretty tough with what might have been a concussion. Oh, okay. yeah. He got blasted on that yeah. play. I can't even believe he came up with his arm not just hanging from his shoulder. 
Yeah, <laughs> speaking of efficiency, he was he shot 59% from the field uh for the wow. series. He was wow. uh, for a 16 guard. he was 23 of 30, 39 from the field um and 16 of 21 from the free throw line, 76%. Um, so, yeah, he and like it, it was interesting because I felt like Lionel Hollins was a better player, but Lionel Hollins uh, just was not shooting the ball as well. And as I said before, he shot 46 percent uh, from the field for this series. He was 41 of 89 <laughs> for the for the series, uh, which isn't terrible. You know, 45 percent for a guard isn't bad, but just right. compared to 59 percent is crazy. Um, yeah. But- and in the previous series, this was the stat that made me go look up the the playoff how the playoffs work. He worked. He shot over seventy five. He shot like seventy eight percent in the previous series. But yeah. But the reason why I ask is because I found myself hating him. Like <laughs> I, I just watching him. I'm just like just the way he throws his body into people. You know, just like he you know he's he just reminded me of uh, Matthew Della Badova. And I realized <laughs> yeah there that it is. Like I'm watching this game from 1977 and just having this visceral fandom. Like I wanted Denver to win, and it took me about four times to get through the game because I knew they weren't going to win, and I just <laughs> I almost couldn't bring myself to watch it. So you guys are watching these objectively. You don't have a dog. You don't have a dog in the race. No, I wanted Denver to win. I wanted Denver to win really bad, and I I couldn't explain it either it's one of the reasons i read that that si piece another interesting thing from that um that i don't maybe puts this in perspective in a way you know the nuggets were the most profitable team too and uh outside of only the lakers and knicks like they were more profitable they were more profitable well i this is the when i'm getting this it's from the season right before they the merger so okay. getting it from the, the it's March of, of 76. But, yeah, they were just they I don't know. They had a really loyal, um, you know, fan base there because they weren't getting nationally televised games. But they were I think they were good. And I think that they had, you know, they were um, fun. loyal I mean, fans in a, the same lineup that we're seeing yeah. here in 77. I mean, they were a good, fun team. Yeah, so 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 Kyle, when you're watching this, you also found yourself rooting for them. Do you know what, what really do you know what it was thought, about? I thought Michael, I mean, so, sorry, David Thompson. Um, I thought David Thompson was just awesome. Um, yeah. And I don't know. It, it was. Uh, I, I I can't really even describe it because there were so many things that drew me to Portland. I, I you know I love their logo, as I said. Um, I also thought that Bill Walton's passing was magisterial i was yeah. like um yeah they just these <laughs> he was so quick and and it just seemed like yeah anytime, anytime one of you says bill walton passing i just get this image of him on the high block on the elbow ball raised all the way above his head the guards crossing the forwards crossing and him finding somebody wide open and throwing like, it behind the back of his head <laughs> and it's yeah just, or or I mean, like, yeah, and I'm thinking these little, about like, like flips and drops and like just yeah, and I'm think I'm thinking about uh the documentary, the Celtics Lakers doc, uh, what is it, the best of enemies, where he's on the Celtics team late in his career right. after yep. all these injuries, but he's playing with a team of just like a ton of high Q high IQ guys, and they're just zip zap zop passing the ball all over the place, and he's making all of his you know classic Bill Walton passes. Uh, yeah, I think Bill Walton was someone who I was struck with and I wanted to like watch I wanted to watch the next series where they play the Lakers and they sweep the Lakers 4-0. Yep. Um yep. and Kareem was the MVP that year and I think by all accounts uh Bill Walton outplayed Kareem. Um and this is and they win the championship this year. Um so like I I found myself wanting to like uh after we do the pod, you know, just like if there's another Bill Walton game or if this next series has a classic game, I'd love to watch that or love to watch the finals uh, when they I, win it. I, I would love to get into the Portland Trailblazers, Philadelphia 76ers finals, because that is um, why I was rooting for the Denver Nuggets here. I was a huge fan of the Philadelphia 76ers. Dr. J was my absolute favorite player. Um, he was when he was in 
the ABA. I must have just read about it because I wouldn't have seen those games back then. But then when he comes to the ABA, I get to see him on uh, Sundays in real games playing. And I wanted the 76ers to win that game, that that series um, so desperately. And Bill Walton and the Trailblazers beating them as a, as a child. I just didn't see it coming. And, and that was my first truly disappointing fan experience of my life mm-hmm. was watching the 76ers lose to the trailblazers in in the in the finals uh two series after this so you yeah. found and there's a, before you no, even saw him well i used to i was i was a really big reader of sports biographies as a kid and so they had those large format books for elementary and middle school kids and so i knew all about dr j high school college aba stuff all of that before the merger like he was he was the guy for me it was just like yeah yeah for me it was gervin and it was because there's a poster of him on the on the blocks of ice and i think yeah yeah. ice man i'll never forget you know i think it's that we fall like part of what what it is is about sports is we're fun and this is what makes the nba so amazing is we fall in love with the personalities and the nba has these beautiful personalities where they're so out in the open and especially today like we we know so much about their inner lives and they're doing so much good in the world and it it makes it so exciting and they have some really complicated personalities too which to get back to to why i liked denver i I couldn't really tell exactly because you know sometimes I just root for the underdog but I think the biggest reason was that I immediately saw a connection between David Thompson and Larry Brown that I thought mirrored what Larry Brown did with Allen Iverson and that initially nice. like got me really interested in them and then of course like Larry Brown is so associated with good memories for me because he coached the Pistons to the 2004 right. championship that I, I think I just had an identification there but Larry Brown's of course a very complicated character and there's an mm-hmm. interesting story about his coaching with the team there because I did a search for Larry Brown and and David Thompson just because I wanted to sort of see what their relationship was like. And um, and the first thing that came up, of course, was the 73-point game that um, Thompson has a couple years later against the Pistons um, and how um, Larry Brown sort of just let him go. But the story I ended up getting was, um, was about Larry Brown joining – the uh joining ucla the bruins for uh as their coach because he'd he'd resigned from denver and he he's reflecting back on that and and he's like he he's i mean i'll just read the quote he said quote deep down inside i always thought i was a good coach but after the thing in denver i had to wonder if i could ever get out of basketball what i truly wanted i was frustrated i had to wonder about myself and apparently it was this like really bad moment for him but it's like with larry brown how are you to know because like he he just seems to like quit every situation you know his right nickname now. is next town brown Next town Brown. Uh, so we need to keep that in mind. But I'm curious, Kyle, do we do we know what he wanted out of basketball that he wasn't getting? That's what I'm wondering. I mean, because who will you know? I, 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 I want to win a championship, a championship I, or bust. No, I, I think, think he wants so. that beautiful game. And the, and with yeah. with that David Thompson game, that was the last game of the 1978 season. He was um, he and George Gervin were going back and forth for the scoring title. And so he went on and scored 73 points, one of only six players to ever top 70 points in a game. But Gervin scored 63 that same day and <laughs> right. still won the scoring title. Edged him by just a, a, a very small um, fraction yeah, of the I just, I, just, yeah. I just wanted to say I think there's like a history of Larry Brown being particularly hard on point guards because he himself was a point guard. And I think you see this with a lot of coaches, the position that they play, they're like really hard on the players that play that position. And obviously David Thompson isn't a point guard, but you know, you bring up Allen Iverson. I think he, there has, there are similar stories about uh, his relationship uh, with Chauncey Billups um, and other point guards that he's coached where like he, he like wants them to rein everything in. He wants them to run the team a certain 
way and only then uh if you sort of like bring your game into his ethos and his viewpoint about the game will he allow you the freedom to play your game and sort of tap into like maybe the three-point shooting or in the case right. of chauncey billups or whatever it is whatever flair whatever defining quality that you have uh, that you feel like got you to the nba or got you to where you are um you know there's sort of a process of getting there um, and so I think I think if I had to guess again, I don't know for sure. But if I had to guess, it was it was something like that, as you're saying, David, the like some version, some ethos, some sort of philosophy about basketball and the way the game should be played uh, that he's just had for his entire life. And obviously, there's probably a bunch of other things, whether it's money considerations or the fact that like he's always put on probation whenever he's coaching in in college. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. but like everyone, but, everyone but go, going that, with that, Jalen. Larry Brown, he holds the record for assists in an ABA game. He he once got 23 assists yep. in a yep. game. Wow. Yeah, wow. and he led the ABA in assists three years in a row. Yeah. Three times, yep, from 68 to 1970. Like, right. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, I think, I think if I had to guess, I would say that was, like, a large part of it. Um, and we, we sort of moved past this point already, but I wanted to say um, – uh, we were talking about the Blazers finals run and the win- winning the finals. There's kind of an alternate history here in the sense that um, Lenny Wilkins was actually the coach of the Blazers the year before this. Um, so Jack Ramsey takes over and they win a championship this year. So if Lenny Wilkins stays there, he, he might have two championships, wow. you know? So um, yeah, it's just sort of, you know, the Blazers got the influx of, they got Maurice Lucas from the ABA merger. Um, and obviously, you know, Walton comes into his own, uh, they get Maurice Lucas, things come together. Jack Ramsey's the coach. Now they've got a championship. You know, maybe maybe Lenny Wilkins has two championships if he remains a coach there. Yeah. Was he a player coach, Lenny Wilkins, when he was in yeah. Portland? Yeah. He was a player coach the year before. I think uh, in 95, 96, he was just a coach. But I think the year before that, he was a player coach. 75 76 yeah just the yeah, coach yeah, so. and then and then he and then he of course comes in and has one season as a, you know as a commentator and then comes yep. back coaches um yeah the this is his sonics, one season <laughs> and then he wins a championship with the sonics yep yep yeah yeah uh, one of the other things I wanted to call out about this game, they talk about it early in the first quarter and then they pick up the discussion in the third there are 28 lead changes in this game and five ties. It's one of the things that makes the game fun. Um, There's a lot of back and forth all the way through the third quarter and into the fourth before the Portland Trailblazers open up a little bit of a lead and that's sort of over. But I went back and took a look. Um, Basketball Reference doesn't uh, start counting this stuff until the 2000 season for playoff games. But In that time period, in the last 20 years, there was one game, and it's just a data point, so I can't tell you what it is. There was one game with 31 lead changes, one game with 30, and two with 28 in the last 20 20 years. So this was a pretty interesting game in that sense, really back and forth in a way we simply don't see a lot. It was a rare, rare game in that sense. And yet it felt like all that closeness was just in the third quarter. Yeah, yeah. And it was, um, to give you a sense of comparison, one of the last times this happened was the 2004 Eastern Conference semifinals, Game 5. Oh, no. Uh, 2006 Eastern Conference first round, Game 5. Cavaliers against the Wizard. LeBron goes for 45. Gilbert Arenas goes for 44. There are 28 lead changes in that game. And that was one of those dueling things, which we see a bit of here with Thompson um, on on the one end and then the more balanced attack. Attack from Portland on the other, but it was in terms of gameplay. I thought one of the more interesting things and reasons to watch this game too was was all of that competitive back and forth. Yeah, and I think this is something I've been thinking about as we've been having this conversation about like which players we're attracted to in terms of like fandom and that sort of thing. Uh, and also, I think a thing that is on my mind is like which players stand up to the sort of like analytic test of the modern NBA, so to speak. So whether it's like a player like George Gervin or a player like David Thompson himself of like, how does their game translate to today? And also how do their statistics sort of hold up? Um, You know, like, People, I think I've heard people say George Gervin, you know, was a great player, but like sort of more of a scorer who wasn't impacting the sort of bottom line of the team. 
uh, don't attack me, David. That's not my opinion. I'm just saying what I heard. But like, I think, uh, you know, I think just going back and like looking at that as we as we sort of go through these classic games and I become more familiar with these players who I never saw play, obviously, and who are completely foreign to me, uh, those sorts of questions become more interesting to me because I can like have uh, the visuals of seeing them play and seeing what their game is like. And then the stats kind of make more sense to me when I'm looking at them. I've had exactly yeah. that experience because I've been kind of following along with some of the games that you guys have been talking about on previous pods. And I never got Bill Russell before. But then actually watching right. him play and seeing like how he just erases everything that the Lakers were trying to do is like, oh, I get it now. Yeah. Yeah. If you, I think if you Google D, I can't remember if this is right, but if you Google defense on basketball reference, I think Bill Russell comes up. I mean, if you search if you search defense on basketball reference, Bill Russell comes up, and so it's something I've heard my entire life, but not until we went back and watched that game a few weeks ago did I really get it. There is absolutely there is a Bill Russell force field that extends <laughs> throughout the key into the wings, and the Lakers don't even approach it. Um, I wouldn't and have Bill understood Wong it that way. How much? Yeah, he's just so, so much better, especially on the defensive end, than anybody else playing. Yeah, and Bill Walton approximates that in this game. Right. You know? mm-hmm. It's so yeah. sad that, you know, Walton only gets one more good year after this. Right. Yeah. We get that one good year and then that Celtics run, which sort of solidified his, his you know, somewhat tragically uh, shortened career. Yeah, because when you're talking about Issel and how he's playing on that foot injury, yeah, I mean that's that you know the next year Walton does exactly that and it just and he, he's never the same. And is I don't it, know if you is it Issel or is it Walton who's playing on the foot injury? It's, I think it, they, this game they show a Issel. shot. They show yeah. a shot of Walton on the bench taking his shoe off uh, while oh, uh, right. he, when he's on the bench. They yeah. call out his hot feet. And I can absolutely tell you those old shoes would give you hot feet. And it's just they didn't have the support that today's shoes do, you know, all of that. It it was a very different thing. And so it wasn't uncommon for players to do that. But yet Bill Bill Walton did have known issues already at that point. So we see him, you know, trying to take care of his feet there. Um, But I don't know if any of you guys have ever had that sort of injury to a toe or foot something like that. I don't know how Issel goes out there at all in this game, if that's truly what is wrong with his foot. And they were talking about using a needle to drain it, which he didn't want to do. The pressure and the pain with every step, every jump, I can't imagine what Issel's going through in this game. Yeah. And and you mentioned like we we don't see uh, that type of player uh, anymore in the NBA. And I was curious as to like, if we, wanted to like map out the sort of player archetypes that we see in this game. So if you want to take Bill Walton, for example, you know, uh, Jokic would be Jokic, like the, yep. the, the, new, <laughs> the new version of that. And like the, he, Walton is sort of the type of player that everyone was worried about disappearing from the game, which right. I think was uh, misplaced because I think big men who can pass and play defense are just there's always going to be a place for that. Yeah. And I think in today's NBA, it's it's almost more about the defensive aspect. Like if you can play defense at an elite, elite level like uh, Rudy Gobert, um, the offensive struggles will maybe only show up in like game seven of the finals or in the hotly contested um, playoff matchup. But I think of someone, um, so like Lionel Hollins and what is it? How do you say his name? Towards towards Zick. Like his player archetype is gone. Like the sort of point guard, pass first point guard who sets the play up and is like hard nose and takes us, takes set screens and takes right. charges and isn't really an offensive player. Those players are quickly being like eliminated from the league. What about Kyle Lowry? Yeah, I mean, Kyle Lowry's a mix, right? Because he can knock down a three and like in his best seasons, he shoots the three pretty well and he shoots it pretty often. But yeah, I think Kyle Lowry, part of the reason why I think Toronto Raptors fans love him so much is because he does do all those dirty, the dirty work things of taking charges and playing good defense. Well, somebody like Issel, do you see like Kevin Love there? Yeah. So, I mean, I'd have to watch more, but I think, I think 
Issel is now like a stretch four, right? They're yep. shooting threes. Yep. And the ba- the bad version of that is like uh, Ryan Anderson, who doesn't right. have the, the foot speed yeah, to, to really play defense and make an impact to take advantage of their impressive shooting ability. And the good version of that is like, I don't know, uh, John Collins for the Atlanta Hawks, who's right. like, uh, right. you know, shot what, like 38% from three this year. Uh, can also be a role man, uh, but he's he's kind of a center. But they're kind of pushing him to the four now that they have uh, they traded for another center. So right. But Isil right. is playing his heart out on defense, which none of those guys do. True. Yeah. I mean, more more like a cat, but just you know, a bit better on defense and not quite as good on offense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Isil could really shoot though. Um, kind of fun to watch his old man jumper out there yeah and i Uh, guess the last thing i wanted to say before we close out is i was reading jack ramsey's wikipedia page and it said he he counts uh or he counted david halberstam as a friend uh which you know made me read david halberstam's wikipedia page (laughs) and then obviously brings me to uh the breaks of the game uh which is about bill walton uh with the blazers in the 79 80 season Right. Highly recommend that book running through the whole season. Um, one of the great pieces of basketball literature out there, I'd say. Uh, Kyle, any last thoughts? Oh, you know, I liked the cultural connections in the game. There's like a moment toward the end there when they mentioned the Chunichi Cup of 1977 that Nadia Komenech was in. Oh, and um, yeah. just like just like getting the overall feel of where we were in history, sure. you know, the cut ins to that um, Warriors Lakers game, um, you know, the the reference to the, the Sixers and Celtics playing at the same time that night um, and, you know, just talking about Dr. J and all that. Um, right. Yeah, it just like one of the best things about going back through these games is getting a feel for like the whole world that they encapsulate. Sure. Yeah, one of the things that captured it for me were all of those large print shirts in the in the audience, you know, watching the game, running behind the camera, uh, trying to get on TV, that sort of stuff. Um, really, just amazing clothes that that lock this game in time to some extent. Um, David, any last thoughts? Just it's been a lot of fun. It's always fun talking basketball with you guys, and it, I've missed it. I love hearing the pod, and it's really fun to be on it. It's been great to have you. You brought some fresh content that I can't imagine anybody else having brought to this, so really appreciate you for that. Uh, Jalen, you want to take another shot at a last thought? No, I'm good. I'm good. All right. Uh, I think I'm good, too. So that is it um, for this latest episode of the Shot Tower Pod. We are turning off the phantom power. Cheers. Yeah, I didn't I didn't get the cheers right last time. Kyle. I'm glad you <laughs> did. Did you listen all the way through last time, Kyle? Because Jalen does the cheer. Cheers at okay. the end for you. Cool. And I just like I just started laughing. I don't know if we but I can't remember if we kept that up. But I like, did. It was it's perfect. The end. Oh, that's great. I'll have to.